Just a trigger warning, this episode of The Politics of Everything deals with issues of consent and sexual assault and may be triggering for some of our listeners. If this has raised issues for you, remember, if you are in Australia, 1800 RESPECT is the number you can call for confidential counselling services. Thank you very much. Welcome to The Politics of Everything. I'm Amber Danes, your host and podcast producer. This is a half hour of power, a podcast dropping every week where I unpack the politics of everything from money to motherhood, nutrition to narcissism, startups to secularism, the environment, quality, and much, much more. Our guests are seasoned in the field or topic of their choice, even if you've not heard of them yet. This is a non-partisan show. So while I love exploring varied views and get a buzz from a healthy debate of ideas, this is not a purely blue, white, green program. Please subscribe, tune in and enjoy the politics of everything. Dr Simon Longstaff is the Executive Director of the Ethics Centre and one of Australia's leading philosophers and ethics commentators, regularly appearing on national radio, broadcasting newspapers to comment on areas such as politics, business and culture, including Q&A in the City Morning Herald. Simon has been instrumental in advising on ethical change and corporate social responsibility for some of Australia's biggest organisations, from Cricket Australia to our banks. Simon began his working life in the Northern Territory of Australia, and after a period of studying law in Sydney and teaching in Tasmania, he pursued postgraduate studies as a member of Magdalene College, Cambridge. In 1991, Simon commenced his work as the first Executive Director of the Ethics Centre. The Ethics Centre is a not-for-profit Sydney-based organisation that aims to bring ethics to the centre of personal and professional life. In 2013, he was made an Officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Service to the Community through the promotion of ethical standards in governance and business to improving corporate responsibility and to philosophy. He has a PhD in philosophy from the Cambridge University, is a Fellow of CPA Australia and the Royal Society of New South Wales, and an honorary professor at ANU National Centre for Indigenous Studies. Today we're discussing the politics of ethics and welcome, Simon. Thank you very much. So let's dig uh, into your childhood dreams. Did you have any career ambitions and what were they? Were there anything to do with where you landed today? In some ways, yes, and in some ways, no. I, I really wasn't entirely clear, but I had this inkling that I might become a lawyer. And that was partly inspired, I think, by the fact that one of my grandparents, my grandfather, had been a a practicing solicitor. But by the time I came to study the law, I found that as I encountered its practice, it was too remote, if you like, from the conception of justice that I developed. And there was a lot of humdrum in, in legal practice. And that's the reality of it. So it didn't really satisfy that aspiration for justice, which in a sense had drawn me to the law. Now, that's probably a shortcoming on my part for not sticking around long enough because there are many lawyers who well and truly satisfy that same urge that I had. But for me, it took me off in another path. And then you know, a series of events in life took me down more to do with education and then philosophy, and that's where I ended up. Absolutely. Interesting. So, yeah, sometimes those things are in us quite early, I suppose, and it's, it, I guess it's defining what that looks like in terms of a career. I'd like to just uh, sort of dive into this idea of ethics. How do you really define it and its role in modern society? And do you think that's changed over maybe the last few decades that you've been involved with the Ethics Centre? 
Well, I think there's been a, a fairly large and general misunderstanding about what it's about, and that's because it's often confused with its cousin, morality. And people have tended to use ethics as if it's just a judgment about the particular character of an individual without understanding how it emerged. And there are analogues in different cultures, but I'll talk about the the Western culture and the history of ethics because the word itself is an ancient Greek word. And the first thing that you need to know to understand it is that words like ethics sit alongside others like epistemology, ontology, aesthetics, things of that kind which are branches of philosophy, and each branch of philosophy emerges in response to a particular question. So if somebody said, I want to talk to you about the nature of truth, they would say, if they were an ancient Greek, well, let's talk about epistemology. And if it's about the nature of beauty, then it's aesthetics. And if it's the nature of existence or being, then it's ontology. So we, we hear these words, and they're often divorced from the central question which they're intended to answer. And ethics is exactly the same, except it tries to answer a very different kind of question. So Plato ascribes to Socrates the particular version of the question that ethics is about answering, which is, what ought one to do? So if you're faced with a decision, if there's an opportunity to exercise some measure of choice, then the thing you are doing in trying to answer what should you do in that moment is ethics. And it's a practical question in that sense, because you know you can talk about truth, beauty, and existence forever, but when it comes to ethics, there might be a really immediate problem. I mean, you could be in a bushfire, for example, like we had a, a while back in Australia throughout the eastern seaboard, where there's a really significant issue, such as children being trapped in a burning house, and you've got to ask yourself, well, what should I do? You know, Do I just watch? Do I stand by? And you certainly can't convene a symposium on your front lawn for a couple of weeks to debate it because... <laughs> no, there's no time if, for that. There's no, no time. But more importantly, if you think you ought to rescue the children, then you've got to actually go and do it. It's, it's not that you say, oh, that was an interesting discussion. Let's let's have a beer and celebrate the fact that we've really thought it through. There's a, an impulse towards action. So it's that practical bit of philosophy. And that then brings you, and I won't go through the whole logic of it, but it, it, it then means that the stuff of human choice becomes what ethics is about. And it has some basic components which occur in every culture, in every time in human history since the dawn of consciousness, and that is values and principles. Values being those things which we say are good, which we would choose if we were free to do so, and principles being things that guide how we go about getting the things that are good. Now, the difference between ethics and morality then is, you, of course, you can have values and principles in a moral framework, which you might inherit from your parents or have through some kind of cultural formation. The thing about a moral life is you can actually follow those precepts without really thinking about it. It's, you know, you could just have virtuous habits. You might be habitually generous or honest or, or whatever, Ethics has a sharper edge to it, and it comes back to another of Socrates' claims that the unexamined life is not worth living. And this is a, a very big claim to say that human beings endowed with this capacity for conscious choice need to take the time to think about what we do. So if you're wandering down the supermarket, you know, looking, looking for eggs or something, yes, you could just put out your hand and pick up the brand that you always get. Or you could stop and for a moment say, well, okay, what kind of eggs do I want? And from, say, free-range chooks versus caged birds. 
So I know it's a long answer, but if I just condense it, you know, in, in, into a simple thing, it's no, it's a massive it's, issue. So I think you've described that very well. It's that part of human inquiry that deals with choice. It recognises choice that is the most powerful force on this planet, human choice that is. It can shape everything. It's only bound by the laws of nature. It recognises that choice is, in fact, a product of our values and principles, each of them being important in their own right, each doing a slightly different job, and that if it comes to an ethical life, that that is, in essence, a life of reflective practice rather than just habitual virtue or vice. So how did you become part of the Ethics Centre 30-odd years ago and what has that experience taught you? Well, it was a kind of an accident. I mean, my mum had died when I was seven, which was a very significant formative experience and then I'd left school at 16 and I'd been up on Groot Island where I'd been a cleaner and then in the safety department on Groot Island. And I'd met and been taken in and looked after by Indigenous people. So I had a kind of unusual background for someone who ends up doing a doctorate in philosophy. And, you know, I'd done everything from, in, even in before going to Groot Island, I'd spent summers in outback Queensland where I'd learned to plough and to build fences and to sweep a board and ride horses and cut burrs. So I'd been very grounded in, you know, the kind of the earthiness of life. Found myself eventually in Cambridge where it turned out I was quite good at what I was doing there. That is in, you know, kind of philosophical debate and discourse. And did a doctorate, which for me was probably the best I could do in one of the best universities in the world in terms of an intellectual pursuit. And then I was wondering what to do with it. You know, I mean, what do you do if you're a philosopher other than stay in universities? And a group of people, including one of them having been my father, had been involved in this conversation about what to do about the so-called excesses of the 1980s when there'd been a lot of bad conduct in Australian business and professional life. And they'd come up with this idea based at St. James Anglican Church in King Street to create an ethics centre. And they'd looked around for probably a year to see if they could find someone already in Australia who might head it up. Because at that time, it was just a committee of people who had a commitment to doing this. They had no money, they had no people. But I came back from Cambridge for Christmas holidays and I said, oh, well, look, you know, we can't find anyone. Can you help us think about where you might look? And then one thing led to another and I was eventually offered the job, although they didn't have any money to pay the job. So, you know, I said, oh, well, look, I'm going back to Cambridge and if you've got some dough that you can pay me for one year, I'll come back, I'll give it a go. And in the end, they didn't have enough money for a year, just for nine months. I thought, oh, well, if I can't make a go of it in nine months, then perhaps I won't in a year. So took the plunge and came back and... Started off just with, I think I might have had a pen and a writing pad in a crypt underneath the church. And then with a lot of support, I have to say, from people on that that board, but also others who could see the need for this, began to build something, but without any roadmap, because there was no model, certainly no model in Australia and not really one in anywhere in the world for what we were eventually to produce. And that was very much a product of necessity where... I mean, there wasn't a pool of money there that you could say, oh, well, you know, someone's endowed this and you can sit there and just sort of dispense wisdom from the hilltop and you couldn't retreat inside a university because we've always been out there in the world with the people who are wrestling with these complex issues. So everything we've done really has been driven by need, the need of others. You know, where somebody said, I really need help with this or we've been able to observe an emerging trend and say, hang on, has anybody thought about why we're doing what we're doing? And just over, you know, 
time. I mean, people get to know you, what you do, and the Ethics Centre has evolved, therefore, into being a unique organisation. Nothing else like it in the world. It deals with everything from end-of-life decisions through to preparing soldiers for war, sport, banks. You mentioned some of those things in the introduction. And so it's been really, really fascinating to be able to have the privilege of going into different worlds, being trusted to understand some of their deepest concerns and to be able to help, you know, help make better decisions. And our model of change, our theory of change is very simple. It's that, you know, better decisions make a better world. And to the extent that we help people to make better decisions, we can see real impact in what emerges. I don't think you'll ever be out of work with all, all the different areas that ethics permeates. Getting older doesn't hurt you. And <laughs> it seemed to have expanded, you know. It's sort of never going to be solved really, is it? It's one of those things. No, it's a gift that keeps on giving. It really does. Absolutely. Mind you, not everybody wants it either. I mean, there's quite a few people who even when they understand it and they don't feel threatened by it, it's not about judging them as good or bad people because plenty of good people make bad decisions. There are others who just say, look, life is complicated enough without having to think about it. Can't somebody just tell me what to do or can't I just do what everybody else does and follow the same trodden paths? And and ethics, of course, is it's, it's subversive of that. It, it says, no, actually, we've got to stop and think because there's great opportunities we miss and there are many risks we overlook if we don't do it. But yeah, there's quite a lot of people saying that's too hard. So you know, it's not as if you're, you're swamped by people wanting to engage with these issues, but there were enough who've you know, they've sometimes had a really bad experience that wash up on the door and they just need some immediate help. So sometimes it's a bit like a bushfire where you get called in when there's been an ethical failure and really you're rendering first aid to some really damaged people. And I think society is starting to understand much better now issues around moral fatigue and particularly moral injury and how it relates to mental health. And that we, I mean, we've got a service called Ethicor, which is, again, still the world's only free national helpline for people. And it's designed to stop people sort of waking up at the end of some calamitous experience and saying, oh, my God, what did I do? I mean, how did I become that person? And if only I'd asked this or that. And if they come to Ethicor, then they can avoid that by working through a really well-structured process. That means they won't suffer that kind of moral injury, which has such devastating effects. Absolutely. This idea of ethics, I mean, is there some ways it can be universally agreed or it can't? So I'm thinking something very practical here that's very topical for our for our era is that idea of wearing a face mask during the pandemic. And, you know, if you're not able to social distance, it's a recommendation. But sometimes we wait, like I know state-based rules have kind of applied here. So we wait to be told it's mandatory on public transport mm. because there's been a cluster or an outbreak. And it's almost become a bit of a political statement, face masks, even in the US and so forth. Does that seem like it's not really about ethics? Is it about choice? I mean, how do you actually get that universal agreement of the right, the right thing to do, or is that more morality, which we touched on earlier? Well, of course, it is about ethics because, as you say, it is about choice. I mean, that is what ethics is about. It's about our choices and the basis on which we make them. So it's a, it's an interesting question, Amber. There, there are some universal aspects. So the basic structure of ethics that I mentioned before, with values and principles, and also linking to purpose. That, that's universal. The content of that structure, you know, it changes from place to place and time to time. So some societies give a priority, say, to the value of liberty over, say, harmony or order, and others give a priority to harmony over liberty. They'd rather be in an orderly society than everybody doing what they want to do. And you'll see differences 
over time. So even a country like the US, which you know really champions liberty, will suppress it after, say, the 9-11 terrorist attacks, where they will give priority to security. And once you understand the dynamics, you can you can unravel the world and everything starts to make sense because you can see the way these different values rising and falling, being expressed in different ways work. So that structure's fixed and it's common. The content, though, does invite potential disagreement and certainly can lead to different conclusions. But they're often overstated. Uh, so, for example, there aren't too many cultures that I know of anywhere in the world that have just got completely unique values and principles that you can't find anywhere else. There's often much more that's in common, but where they tend to differ, and this can be inside countries as well, by the way, uh, they tend to differ in terms of how a particular value might be expressed. So a value like friendship for some people is expressed by spending time together, having a meal, whatever. In other cultures, though, there's a ritual element about gift giving and receiving. And if you don't understand that, it can look like something which is a bit odd. So firstly, you've got the issue about how shared values are expressed in different modes. And then you've got this difference in priority I mentioned. The trouble is, often we make assumptions about why people are doing what they're doing or what they should do without ever being very transparent about this. So a government that is very smart will often try to explain to its citizens why something like mask wearing is recommended. They won't just say, oh, we've just got to do it because it's the right thing to do or because medical research says it's necessary. I mean, those could be persuasive to some people. But if you really want to communicate with people, you will firstly give reasons which are attached to certain ethical positions. And if you're a very smart leader, you will do it in ways that allow for recognition of the different modes by which people judge such questions. So I'll just give you three basic family groups of reasons that people typically respond to, and they do so in different proportions in different societies. So there's some people, if you ask, look, should we all be wearing masks on public transport? Their first question will be, well, what's the likely outcome of doing so? I mean, is this going to make things better or worse? If I wear a mask, will it increase, if you like, the overall good in terms of its consequences? But only around 50% of people in a country like Australia will ask that question or even think it's a legitimate basis. Other people will say, actually, it's not about whether it's going to have good or bad outcomes. It's about whether we have any obligation to other people. Have we made a promise to them? For example, as fellow citizens, are we bound by some mutual obligation or Others will ask, is there some basic right which I claim as a citizen which is going to be violated in relation to this? And then there's another group who say, actually, I don't really worry about consequences. I don't really worry about whether there are specific obligations. My major concern is who do we become? You know, what kind of person will I be if I do or don't do this? And what kind of society might we be? So political leaders who really want to engage with the community we'll take all of that into account. Just as commercial leaders you know, making similar arguments in businesses will know the people they're talking to, they have these multiple forms of ethical language which they default towards. And so you might as a government say, well, look, you know, I think we need to do this. These are the consequences. This is why it's consistent with our obligations to each other. This is how it has a bearing upon our rights and how they're mediated by these obligations. And this is the character and quality of the society that we tend to build, you know, that we wish to build. This is who we want to be. But you don't hear it. 
you, you really don't hear that sophisticated narrative coming out of the mouths of politicians of any any party. Definitely not. It's very it, it's very much simplified and dumbed down in a way. It is, and, and uh, one of the things I've noticed over the years is that we grossly underestimate the capacity of the Australian public to respond to good reasons. We've spent many years running debates, the Intelligence Squared debates in Australia, where we get really thorny issues and we'd get, you know, a thousand people in a room and you'd ask them before they hear any argument what they think on the question and they'd vote on that, you know, for or against, undecided. At the end of the debate, you'd see nearly every time really sharp changes in opinion. And that was based on the arguments. And I just wished that you could have had politicians from across the political spectrum sitting there watching this, just seeing that actually Australians are really good at listening to arguments, that they're really good at working out what they want to do if only they are treated as adults. And some people say, oh, well, this is, you know, just those in the inner cities. I I can tell anybody, I mean, when I started off in my life in, you know, as a cleaner in a mine and then later in the safety department, I was working with people who were about as grounded as you can imagine. They were as rough as guts in some cases. And some of the best conversations I've had about ideas and things took place in trucks and sitting around in a mess hall and things like that. We, we just don't really give credit to the Australian public to be able to respond to good argument. I think it's a, it's a tragic waste of opportunity that our political class doesn't see that as a possibility. I guess that leads me to my next question about how can we remedy what seems to be a rampant distrust in our, in our government, some of our legal systems, our formal systems, if you like. I mean, look at reports of things such as, you know, the storming of the Capitol in Washington earlier this year mm. to the way we've dealt with sexual assault allegations in workplaces traditionally and our, in our social settings as well as workplaces, I guess, also. And, and I guess our general distrust of government, particularly in response to the pandemic and, and the vaccination rollout in Australia, which is it's drawn so much criticism and probably quite rightly so. I mean, what's the what's the remedy for that that distrust? It's it's actually so simple. I mean, it's it, maybe executing it's difficult, but building trust isn't that hard. I mean, it's a, the, the model is this: what you do firstly, if you want to be trusted, firstly you've got to tell people what are what's the basis on which you're prepared to be judged. You know, what is it that you intend to do? And you don't have to provide a shopping list of single actions. If you are able to articulate clearly your core values and principles and say, okay, these are the things I say that are good. These are the principles I use to decide what's right. And you can now watch me and see whether or not I deliver on what I say. Then those who deliver on what they say, that is those who act with integrity, they are what they say they are. They do what they say they will do. They are inevitably trusted. And it's as simple as that. The problem is that governments around the world, A, have been very unclear about what they stand for because often their pursuit of power has become for power's sake alone. And secondly, they have frequently failed to deliver on the promises that they made or that they still rely upon, sometimes hundreds of years old. So just take a a simple example. The concept of the free market developed by the Scottish philosopher, professor of moral philosophy, Adam Smith, It never said the market was good in and of itself. It's only a tool, and it's a tool for increasing the stock of common good. So the promise made by the market is, actually, in the long run, everybody will be better off. The notion of democracy in its modern form from the time of Hobbes onward says, 
Actually, the citizen lies at the heart of the state. It's not about the crown. It's not about the minister. It's about the role of the citizen. And there'll be conventions around that, things like ministerial responsibility and all the rest, which will continually affirm to you as a citizen that this is true. Now, nearly all of these things in recent years have failed to deliver. I mean, you can look at the free market in America where there has been wage stagnation for such a long period of time. Similarly, in Australia, you look at politics where the conventions, very conservative conventions like ministerial responsibility have just been thrown out the window. And you take those sorts of failures to deliver on what's promised. And you've seen you know, royal commissions in all sorts of things revealing how what's promised hasn't been delivered. And you then say to people, look, you're living in a time of potentially profound change, whether it's the kind of change ushered in by COVID or the accelerated application of autonomous systems, AI, robots, whatever, that threaten jobs and things. And people start to say, oh, okay, well, if, if all this change is coming, can I trust the people who are in charge of government, of business, of our major institutions to look after me like they've promised they will? And they say, I don't think so. And so they then start to create the conditions in which they're going to seek to slow down change, That might, even if that change might otherwise benefit them. They just feel that they will be left behind. And so in those circumstances of poor trust, we are all worse off for it. But until those who are in politics or leading our major institutions are willing to say, this is the basis on which you're going to judge me and then start being trustworthy that is acting in a way that's consistent with that, then we'll continue to have this deep suspicion in some sections of the community, particularly those feeling vulnerable. Absolutely. The idea of consent when it comes to sexual activity has come to the fore in the past six to 12 months and how we navigate that in 2021 feels vastly different to generations gone by, maybe more mm. so because of, you know, some of the people have spoken out and drawn media attention. We've got our Australian of the Year, Grace Tame, and also social media's ability to capture, I guess, what's said and done in a way in which changes the power dynamic in, in many ways. How important has this issue been to date? And ethically, why is consent only really a big deal now? It feels like we're talking about it more than ever? Well, I think it's always been a big deal in the sense that if you if you ever, I mean, maybe, no, not always, that's too strong a statement, because certainly there's been periods in history where women have been treated, for example, as chattels, and they've had that legal status where they were property of their husbands, and we've gone through that. And there's been, you know, that, that deep history of prejudice against women's equality as persons. But the philosophical arguments against that proposition, they go back thousands of years. I mean, you know, the fundamental equality you'll find in Plato, although people like Aristotle are not at all good on that particular level. But if you get closer to our own time, I think if you put to most people alive today and in the last, say, 30 or 40 years, what they think about the idea that you should be able to engage in acts of physical intimacy or even emotional intimacy with people against their will generally speaking, they would say, no, that can't be right. In fact, I, I looked the other day at an old piece of footage from Australia, which I think was filmed in the 1960s. It was on YouTube, and I was expecting to find these 
it's mainly asking men about you know whether or not they sh- you know their their attitudes to women. I thought oh they'll be all dinosaurs. <laughs> they sounded pretty enlightened back then. So I don't know what happened in the in between period. But in in any case, I think today people get the idea that consent is not something which is an unusual thing to expect before a person engages with you, particularly if there's any kind of intimacy involved. The problem has been that people have either thought uh, because it was convenient to do so that. You know, silence equaled consent, and often it wasn't. It was just a person paralysed in the moment and unable to to speak out as to how they were truly feeling. Or there's been peer group pressure, possibly applied not just, I think, probably to to women, but also to men, where they felt the pressure to behave in a particular way. And it's just got to a point where you know the grubbiness of it and the really sordid experience of some people was constantly being swept under the carpet. And to the immense credit of the women who came forward and said, well, I'm just not going to put up with this and I'm going to speak out and then being supported by others, people have said, oh, my God, you know, have we become that kind of person or that kind of society in which people can simply have things forced upon them against their will? Now, there's a possibility that we will try and fix this ethical problem by a set of formal rules which will become really clumsy and there'll be unintended consequences of it and we'll look back and we'll say, oh, did we really need to react in that way? Wasn't there a better way to do it? And I don't know what history will show. Maybe there will be, but for the time being, the heightened awareness and the absolute insistence that no person, irrespective of their gender or any other consideration, should be required to engage in a relationship of whatever kind with another person without free, prior and informed consent. I mean, that's just, I think, becoming unthinkable. And now it's a question, you know, another one of these profoundly important ethical questions is how do you give that effect in a way that is also true to the, you know, the sometimes messy, uncertain elements of human relationships where everybody can be a bit nervous and clumsy without necessarily being violent or indifferent. Mm, Very powerful answer there. So climate change has also been described as a moral and ethical issue, not just an environmental Mm. concern. And how do you see that? And also businesses and leaders still grappling with this idea of how to tackle it. So it's the idea, particularly for me, because I've got young children, that I feel this this need, this, this moral imperative in some ways to do the right thing for the future generations as well as the planet. Is this something which you deal with a lot at the Ethics Centre and how, how are people navigating it, particularly businesses and leaders, I guess, who are in the power position? Yeah, it's a, it's been a constant part of, of what we've been looking at now for oh, a long time and it is an ethical issue. It's a really powerful one because even if you're sceptical of the science, and I'm not, but some people are, you just got to ask, well, of those people, what if you're wrong? I mean, are you really prepared to take the risk for your children, your grandchildren, for those, even for total strangers or the planet, that that you might be wrong? Because, you know, the cost of addressing this actually turns out not to be so much of a cost as an opportunity, but it's an opportunity that brings about the need for transition. And And I've argued along with others for a long time that one needs to think about whatever transition comes to be both just and orderly. In other words, no one should be left behind. No one should have to pay a disproportionate burden for the benefit that flows to the rest of society. 
So it really does require you to confront this. And of course, the issue for businesses now is I don't think there are too many that need convincing. Uh, in fact, if you look at what most businesses are doing, driven in case, in fact, by investors and others, they're really coming to grips with it. The, the laggards in all of this are governments and not all governments. I should say there are some governments, both conservative and labor that or Liberal and Labor mainly, that have been really on the front foot and are doing extraordinary things. But for some reason, at the level of the federal government, the major parties have been unable to find a formula to allow them to really embrace the opportunity that this presents. And I mean, if any country was set to benefit from the transition, it's got to be Australia. I mean, we have got the potential for vast reserves of you know clean energy we've got the natural resources with automation and other things we can compete even in manufacturing because labor costs become immaterial in that sense and we should be you know excited about being on the verge of becoming one of the most prosperous societies the world has ever known but we don't seem to have a political class in canberra that knows how to articulate that and secure that advantage for the community. And maybe, I don't know what it is, why they're so beholden to a few, except I would say that, I mean, I know there are people, for example, out in you know coal communities who they don't necessarily want to go down a coal mine every day, but they do want to know that you know, they'll have a job in the future, that they'll be able to educate their kids, that they can you know pay for their health costs, a whole series of bread and butter issues. And it just it leaves me startled that the political groups haven't worked out a way to give them that kind of assurance so that they can let go of their fears and embrace the opportunity. You'd think it'd be a golden opportunity for someone, but they haven't. And in doing that, they they betray the possibilities for a secure and healthy and prosperous future for people like your children, who in increasing numbers as they mature are becoming deeply resentful of the fact that the generation in power at the moment, or a subset of it, a small subset of it really, and I'd say even a minority, are going to leave them with the legacy of a more dangerous, more difficult world if we don't get our act together. The the good news is I think the rest of the world is also moving on, not just business, and I just simply cannot believe that it's going to sit back and let Australia be a laggard and at some point, and it may come as soon as November of this year, there's going to have to be a reckoning for government to come in line with with the majority opinion. I mean, farmers are on board with this, nearly everybody, as I say. So it's a pretty significant moment for Australia to see if we can have governance of a kind that can deal with this challenge. Absolutely. Who have been your greatest mentors on this journey that has led you to where you are today? Well, one of them's long dead. Socrates is one. Just been inspired by him from the. You can't you can't claim you knew him, but obviously he's had a massive impact on your on your work and your your experience. <laughs> no, I don't. I, I never. No, obviously didn't know him. But you know what? What for me, he's been such a powerful figure because he was killed for what he did, just for asking questions. But more importantly, that he did that and saw the value of his own life in doing this and being a bit of a gadfly not really knowing the answer, but always pursuing the question. He did that even though on the night before he died and he was executed by his own people for, they convicted him of two crimes, of impiety 
and for corrupting the youth, basically for asking questions. If he'd looked back and said, oh, you know, was this a life worth doing? And he judged it by consequences. You know, if he'd been someone and said, oh, you've got to do an impact assessment, he'd yeah. say, well, what a total failure. Look, you know, I'm, I'm about to get executed tomorrow. Um, this hasn't been so good. Or maybe I should have spent my time doing something more useful, like inventing a better plough. But he didn't. He, he actually could not know, did not know, that he would be one of the most profound individuals in the history of the world, that he would have an impact thousands and thousands of years later. And he chose his life not because he expected the impact would necessarily follow, but because he thought it was an intrinsically right thing to do, that this was a good life for a human being. So he's, he's been a very profound role model for a whole host of reasons. The other person who's alive still is a guy I most admire, called Rob Ferguson, who is retired now, but he was the managing director of Bankers Trust Australia and went through a really, really, well, he went through fantastic periods and incredibly difficult periods. But he struck me every time I saw him operating both at an individual level and also within his corporate context as being just one of the most relentlessly honest people I know in a, in a self-effacing and totally disarming way. And it, and it wasn't a strategy. He was just always honest about the truth of the, sit, the situation, his own strengths, his own weaknesses. And I find that incredibly admirable. I mean, there are probably others like it. It's just that I saw him in the absolute crucible of a difficult moment and never once did he falter even though that must have been incredibly difficult. That's amazing. If you could choose a favourite book, song or film, what would it be and why? Mm, well. I feel like you're going to tell me a philosophy book, but you could tell me some sort of rock and roll song and I'll just be completely surprised. No, no, no. My my mind leapt immediately to two songs. One's very dark and one's very light, but they're both by the same bloke, Van Morrison. So music is very important to me in my life. I just it, it, it's just hugely significant. But the reason that there's, there's two songs, there's one called The Bright Side of the Road by Van Morrison, which I defy anybody to listen to without feeling happier at the end than they did at the beginning. It's just got that kind of lilt to it, which is full of joy. And the other one is called The Slave, and it's really dark, and it's kind of got an optimistic bit in it, but you've got to find it. But it's it's got quotation in it from a poem by William Blake called The Four Zoas. And the quotation, which I've, I've, it's not the most cheerful idea, but I've always carried it with me, is that begins by saying that wisdom is sold in the desolate market where no one comes to buy. Oh, it's powerful stuff. Wow. (laughs) What a line. That's pretty much summed up what my life. Final takeaway message for us on the politics of ethics. Well, the final takeaway is that I'm not sure that your listeners are necessarily aware of this, but politics and ethics are traditionally the two sides of a single coin. So questions of ethics were traditionally questions about what is the good life for the individual. And politics, its cousin, was what is the good life of the community. And I just think that maybe the separation of the two has been too deep and for too long and they ought to come back together. Well, there's lots of work to do. It's been an absolute pleasure, Simon. Thank you so much. And if you do want to connect further with Dr. Simon Longstaff and the Ethics Centre, there will be some details on the show notes. Until next time, keep well. 
Thanks so much for listening today. If you've enjoyed the politics of everything, I thrive on your feedback. So please add a short review and share the podcast with your network through Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects. I'm always on the hunt for new and diverse guests. So if you or someone you know has a fresh idea, you're busting to get out there, please email me at amber at amberdanes.com and my crew will get back to you very soon.